podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Face Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. I hope you're having a wonderful Labor Day weekend, or perhaps you have just enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. In either case, we have another episode for you. This is the 10th installment of the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist series. As an FYI, I want to say that this is by far the most popular series within the Rational Face podcast. If you find this series useful or enjoyable and want to share it, please do! You can share a specific episode, or if you click on the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist tag on that appears on each post, you'll get a page with all ten episodes popping up. You can share that. In addition, I'd like to ask those faithful listeners to go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Even if this is the only series you listen to, in which case you are really missing out. But in such a case, please still go to iTunes and rate the podcast and in your review say how great you think the series is. With that plugging business out of the way, let's get down to the discussion. back with another installment. It's been about a month and a half, but we have another installment of Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, myself, and Laurel as usual. So glad to have everyone back. So Jennifer, you have a new course coming out in September. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, So it's just a three-week, meaning a um, three-class course on how to talk to your kids about sexuality and it's particularly for LDS parents trying to navigate the law of chastity in a context of um, sexual liberalism or meaning you know a sex saturated environment that we live in and helping kids to navigate that with some wisdom and sort of an internal compass um, and knowing how to talk to your kids about sexuality from a very young age all the way through adolescence to help them to cultivate both a healthy understanding of sexuality and as it relates to adult relationships and a relationship to themselves um, at whatever developmental stage they're in. So that's what the course will cover. Great. And like your other courses, you'll be recording this as you go. So if someone doesn't join on the right date, they can still... Yes. Listen to the conversation. That's right. That's recorded as you go, right? That's right. So the even if you can't be there, if they're on Saturday evenings, and even if you can't be there, then you can listen to the recordings after the fact. Plus, you can email me questions in between the classes if you actually can't attend live, and then I'll respond to the questions in the in the live class, um, and then you continue to have access to the recordings after the course is over. So, so yeah. Great. And for those who don't want to spend any money at all, I'm going to link to a TED Talk by <laughs> Julia Sweeney that kind of has a five-minute comic modeling of how to talk to your kids about sex <laughs> and that conversation. Yeah, it was hilarious. So uh, I'll link to that. But uh, So let's get started. Uh, Laurel, why don't you lead us in reading the first question? All right. Let me pull that up here. How do I raise my children, particularly my daughter, to own their sexuality? 
Okay, good. And uh, maybe I will focus more on the daughter element of that. But um, I would say maybe uh, several guiding principles. But I think the first piece that it's really important is just a strong sense of ownership of one's sexuality and one's body and an acknowledgement that that these are gifts from our parents in heaven to you and that um, your sexuality and your body does not belong to somebody else. It doesn't belong to a future spouse. Um, It doesn't even belong to your grandmother who wants to kiss you when you don't want to be kissed. (laughs) It belongs to you. And it's just a very important message to give kids from the very beginning. It even helps them to protect themselves from exploitation if they have a strong sense of permission to decide who they let touch them and not touch them. There's a book that I recommend to parents called It's Your Body, and it's really written for like a three- to six-year-old child. And it's a very simple message, but it's a very powerful message, which is your body is a gift. It it doesn't use the language of it's a gift of God to you, but it's uh, your body is yours. And you get to decide um, who touches you and who you touch. And um, so I think that's really important. And I think that, you know, that's a strong antidote to the pressuring that girls in particular can experience around um, accommodating a boy's desires or accommodating an adult's um, advances that if they have some sense this is, you know, some of the work that I did in my dissertation, but a lot of the women who grew up believing through the law of chastity lessons that they got and so on, that their sexuality was really there for their future husband and implicitly understood the message that sexuality belongs to men and that women's sexuality is there to accommodate men and to be desirable to men, had a very difficult time in general navigating their dating relationships, their sexual, you know, meaning whatever level of physical engagement they had with with boys and men was really confused and obscured by this idea that they were supposed to be sexually desirable and in some respect available to men. And it was often, you know, challenging because they would get they would struggle between two ideals. One is that you should be chaste and virtuous and virginal up until you are married so that you're desirable to your future spouse, but also that you should be warm and accommodating and um, kind and to care about men and their feelings was the other ideal that would often make it, and then all of this in a context of making yourself and keeping yourself desirable to men would very much obscure for many of the women that I interviewed their ability to navigate their own desires. And this is a piece that I'll talk about too because I think a very important message is not just around ownership of your sexuality and that this is a gift from God to you, but also the primacy and importance of of desire. Um, and we don't talk about pleasure and desire. In fact, as parents, we often try to avoid conversations about it because it scares us and we're afraid if they they know that sexuality brings pleasure and if we even talk about our children's desire that maybe we'll create something that wouldn't otherwise be there or I don't know why it makes us so nervous. Um, but when we won't really allow kids to understand how powerful 
sexual desire is and how much of a force it is in your life from puberty forward. Um, and what's also been a force on some level before puberty, but it comes on much more strongly at puberty. And understanding how to navigate your both your physical desires that are emerging in order to be able to reproduce someday. And so it's very important that those desires are coming on board. But if you don't both normalize and then help children know how to navigate the issues of desire and desirability, uh, then kids really are 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 trying to navigate these things very much in isolation. And so when you allow girls in particular who I think get less permission to do this, I'll say a bit about boys too because they also, it's challenging for boys in a different way. But I think that girls are taught to be desirable but not to desire. And so what happens is if you don't use your desires, and I don't just mean your physical desires, but your desires in terms of what do I want, what kind of a relation, what do I want with respect to my sexuality, what do I want with respect to the law of chastity, what do I want with respect to the kind of relationship that I want to have someday. If you don't cultivate a strong connection to those desires and help them understand and articulate what it is that they want, then they don't have that as a reference point when they're trying to navigate the inherent pressures that will happen when you're in a relationship with somebody else. And so not only do they not have that to navigate, but they also don't even understand that it matters and that it's important. And if you're going to have a fulfilling sexual relationship down the road with someone, you really need to understand both that your desires are important and to know what they are in order to cultivate and behave in a way that allows you to get what really matters to you. And so in my dissertation research, the women that really did the best um, with respect to obeying the law of chastity and having a very satisfying sexual relationship in marriage, uh, that they were the ones who really took the sexism out of the law of chastity. They really saw their desires as mattering. They saw pleasure as mattering. They believed that it was legitimate and God saw it as legitimate. And so they didn't feel like they owed men anything. They didn't feel like they had to manage men's desires um, at their own expense. They were able to just advocate for what they wanted and to share of themselves to the degree that they wanted that was in line with both their desires and their, their moral principles. So I think really... You know, it's very much linked to this idea of ownership, but your body belongs to you, your sexuality belongs to you, and and you get to decide. You know, your desires matter, pleasure matters. It's very important in in, in navigating your choices, and then what you really desire and want, and what you believe is right, those really matter. And so, being true to yourself is really important for cultivating both a, a a solid sense of self and by extension a strong sexual relationship down the road because it will be an expression of that solid self that allows you to enjoy and have a meaningful sexual relationship with a future spouse. So I think those are um, really important principles. Um, I would talk in, in line with that about the idea that both sexes, meaning both men and women, boys and girls, are sexual. And they may be sexual in slightly different ways, but both are sexual and both have have very similar sexual potential. Um, if anybody has more sexual potential, it's, it's women. But um, I would say that, and both are responsible for their behavior relative to the law of chastity. 
So you are not, as a female, responsible for boys' sexual choices. Now, that you are responsible for your choices, okay, and you are responsible for how you engage with another person, whether or not you're trying to be enticing, you're trying to um, lure or allure, you know, you're, you are responsible for whether or not you're functioning in a way that's respectful, both of yourself and towards another person. But that's what you're responsible for. And so you do not want to use your sexuality to seek or gain approval and you don't want um, to sexualize yourself in order to make yourself, uh, you know, legitimate or desirable. I think there's a lot of pressure both on girls and boys, adolescent girls and boys, to be sexual. You know, sexuality has really become a commodity the way we in popular culture has used it and promoted this idea that this is something that you can sort of separate from relationships, almost that should be separate from relationships in a certain way in order to be cool and sort of establish yourself as cool. And I think there's you know, pressure on boys to demonstrate that their sexual prowess through being sexual, often way more sexual than they want to be or feel comfortable being. And I think there's pressure on girls to sort of be sexually generous. Um, and I, I don't think this is often driven by pleasure, desire, intimacy. It's driven by this desire to sort of establish yourself as legitimate in this very sexualized culture. And so, Helping our children to nav- understand those pressures are there, to see how their desires can get manipulated, and to help them to define what really matters to them, what it is that they hope to create is all an important part of that conversation. So I have a question, a follow-up sure. question with that. Um, so what would, like just a, I, so I love like listening to these general principles, what would be some good how-to kinds of, like, like what what would be some good conversation starters to have with, say, like a young teenager or a teenager? Um, what kinds of questions would you recommend parents ask their kids to help them understand these principles or even even younger yeah. than teens? Oh, definitely younger than teens. Uh, but even if you have a teenager and you haven't had these conversations, I think um, what I would say is that um, biologically speaking, Kids don't want to know anything about their parents' sexuality, and parents also don't really want to know about their kids' <laughs> sexuality, okay? So there's a natural aversion that's there. And just to kind of deal with it and say, you know, it doesn't really matter, you got to talk about it anyway. And so just to kind of allow yourself as a parent to know that your child, especially your adolescent child, and especially if you haven't had these kinds of conversations, is going to act like you're torturing them when you start to talk about this. But you talk about it anyway because you you owe it to them. It's your responsibility as a parent. And and kids will always act like you're, you're just grossing them out, but you just kind of know that's what they need to do and you just say what you need to say. So I think one of the things I would say in terms of a conversation starter is, first of all, I would just say what you think more when you're seeing something on television or in a movie even going silent is a message. Okay, mom's really uncomfortable or, you know, leaving the room like this is something that can't be talked about. So what you do does send a powerful message. Commenting on it, not like, hey, you should think like I think. You can also just say, you know, I think it's really, 
um, interesting that this couple on television in 10 minutes has gone from meeting each other to being sexual with one another. I think that's interesting, you know, that they're trying to promote that as sort of normal or healthy. And so that you're just, you're just allowing yourself to share your thoughts about what's happening. Um, I think it's also, even if you're a parent of an adolescent to say, you know, I know I haven't talked to you much about this and I know it's a hard conversation to have, but, you know, I, here are some of my thoughts about, you know, X, Y, or Z. I mean, you, you might even want to choose something that you want to discuss with them. And I'll definitely go over this a lot more in the course that I'm doing. But I think that you bring up things that you observe or have, you know, hey, I was listening to this song the other day. I don't know, you know how much you've heard it. And I thought these lyrics were interesting. What do you think about those lyrics? Some, you know, some very sexual lyrics or some... Now, they may be like, oh, mom, you know, don't do it. <laughs> but you just do it anyway. It's the, if they can feel it from you that you care about them, that these are hard things to navigate, that you can see the pressures that you imagine they be, may be under. And you're also interested in what do they want or what do they think or what is it like for them. But also sharing what you think, what it was like for you as a kid. Uh, you don't, they don't want to know uh, any specifics, but you may want to talk about some of the challenges you found yourself in or ways that you found yourself pressured and what you did that was helpful for yourself or that was not so helpful for yourself. So um, I think it's just kind of having the conversation. And I would say use uh, accurate language. Don't try to use the language of teenagers because they'll the, you'll creep them out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes like my, you know, I, I mean, I think the earlier you start and you establish that you are a resource and that you can handle the conversations, your kids are going to be more willing to come to you. And, you know, if you can deal with your own anxiety about it, you're going to do a better job. I think that, you know, for example, my, my, one of my sons came to me and said, um, Mom, what is, I can't remember what it was, but he said, what, what is the meaning of such and such? It was like slang and it was some sexual behavior. And I can't remember what it was exactly. And I said, um, I said, well, I'm happy to answer it, answer you. I said, I think it, it will be a little bit embarrassing for you for me to explain to you what it is, but I'm more than happy to answer. And, and I said, so do you want me to answer? And, you know, he's like in this like tortured moment of like, I want the information. And, <laughs> and so he's like, oh, he's like, okay, go ahead. Tell me. <laughs> just kind of like, I, I need to act grossed out right now because that's just sort of what I need to do. But yeah, go ahead. Tell me. So, you know, it's, if you can just sort of acknowledge and work with the natural discomfort that's there, but just go ahead and do your job anyway. Um, and I think as parents, our job is to say, is to help kids understand the pressures that are on them, both internally and externally, and just help them define and understand what it is that they're reaching towards, and to just help them to sort through who they're going to be amidst those choices. And as a parent, to recognize they have choices, and you're not going to be able to control those choices. And so helping them to create an internal reference point is, is really your goal. Okay, so whether they want to talk about it or not, 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> then just say it anyway, yep. and they're going to be uncomfortable. Right. And there's tons of things your kids don't want to hear from you. Like, you know what? you got to do homework before you do get on the computer. I mean, it's right. just how it's parenting just is, right? And so yeah. you got to do your job anyway. All right. Uh, I'm sure you'll cover this in your course, but what age do you think you should start having somewhat semi-formal discussions on this stuff? Oh, probably, you know, more if it's a more formal discussion, probably around age seven or eight, um, uh, uh, you know, of outlining reproduction. But there's so much more than reproduction um, to talk about. I mean, I think even if you're bathing your child, to just, you know, God has given us our entire body. It's not like we have the righteous part and the unrighteous parts. You know, it's it's like you get your whole body and it's all good. And so even if you're bathing your child, you can say, here's your arm, you know, here's your chest, here's your hip, here's your vulva, now I'm washing your leg, you know, it's just like, like mom or dad can handle the whole thing and there's nothing, there's no um, anxiety. So if you can just establish a sense of comfort with the entirety of one's body and then the entirety of one's sexuality, but then how do we use our sexuality for good or how do we use our body for creating goodness in the world, you know, that's, um, that's inclusive of sexuality. That's the goal. And we really have to shed ourselves, especially as LDS people, because we have a theology that backs us up. We have to shed this cultural anxiety about sexuality as sort of, you know, the, the necessary evil. Yeah, it's just not that. All right. Well, let's move on to our next question. Move along. Move along. Move along. This has to do with something that comes up periodically on the blogger knuckle. Uh so here we go. I still have a couple years before my oldest child enters the youth program of the church, but I'm already having a lot of anxiety about the thought of worthiness interviews with the bishop that will come along with that. Even as an adult, I'm uncomfortable being asked personal questions alone in a room with another man who has authority over me. What is a healthy way to approach and navigate these interviews for myself and for preparing my children for them? There just seems to be such a big power imbalance here, especially when dealing with women and youth. It can be scary to refuse to answer a question or to question your priesthood leader when you're standing in the church and perhaps a temple recommend is on the line. Can you provide some perspective on this from a therapist's point of view? Okay, sure. So I'll start by saying, I mean, I think most of the time and maybe even, you know, great majority of the time, maybe even that bishops handle this well enough, you know, that it that it goes OK and that bishops are well intentioned and are not, uh, you know, not being voyeuristic in these interviews or trying to get more information about the sexuality of a young girl or something than is absolutely necessary and so I think in the system itself there's many people that do it well enough and um, are trying to serve a higher purpose of holding a standard and keeping youth accountable to a standard um, I think that said there is a systematic problem in the way that we currently do it and I think there's maybe two problems that I would see with it. One is the power imbalance and then what can happen in the privacy 
of that space of a power imbalance. And I don't mean necessarily a bishop fondling a child or necessarily or anything like that, although that could happen. But even just the lack of accountability for the bishop around what kinds of questions might be asked, what kinds of doctrines might be or ideas might be suggested or um, or um, taught. And I think that that can be problematic just overall. Um, and then, of course, the issue of the, the gender difference, the male asking a female, whether an adult or a child, uh, you know, or an adolescent, for example, about her sexuality and her sexual behavior. Um, and so I think that, it, that it's a setup for problematic behavior. And I, you know, have worked with clients where, you know, a bishop's asking a 16-year-old girl, she comes in to confess that she's having sex with her boyfriend, and the bishop wants to know blow by blow, basically, and she's very attractive, and he wants to know all the details, and it's voyeuristic clearly on his part, and she can feel it. And, and you know, how does she handle that? She's going in in, in um, good faith to try and deal with her choices and to try and figure out what, what she can do to help herself and she's having to deal with someone who's exploiting it and it's it's just it's just very tricky because you know much of the time it's it's well-intentioned people trying to help our youth and it does take a village and it does take a village to and often kids don't want to talk to their parents and they're looking for a wise adult to help them so I think that um I have a few thoughts about first of all what I think could be better systematically if we were to make some systemic changes and then what we as parents can do in the meantime I think systemic changes that would be valuable is just to have girls report to women and uh, boys report to men I think that would be helpful uh, I think it would be very easy you don't have to even extend priesthood to women for the young women to talk to their young women leaders and if there's really something that a young women's leader believes needs ecclesiastical support, you know, or priesthood support, then she could accompany the girl into a bishop's interview and um, to allow a way for a girl to, first of all, a woman is going to understand the female experience. I mean, many, you know, I have another client who went in and talked to her bishop and she felt absolutely pressured sexually by this guy who did things that she did not want to do. And yet, because she'd grown up with this idea that she's somehow responsible for men's behavior, she was confused by, like, did I somehow entice him? Did I, I, she clearly did not want it. She did not, it was not coming out of desire. And so he crossed boundaries that she did not want him to cross, and she still felt a sense of guilt and shame because she felt less pure. And so she went and told the bishop, who then implied that she did have some responsibility for it because, you know, she didn't, say you know say no sooner that maybe it was the way that she was dressed i mean he was he was definitely holding her responsible i think if she'd gone and spoken to a woman about it that woman would have pretty clearly tracked the bind that that the young girl felt like she was in and helped her to make sense of it and to make sense of what happened and how she can 
better better help her navigate it in the future and know how to be truer to her own to her own desires and so forth. So I think just having young girls be able to talk to their young women's leaders would be a great system systemic change. Um, I'll speak to the adult piece in a moment, like an adult woman speaking to the bishop. I'll speak to that at the end. I think that in the meantime, I think that what a parent can do is several things. One is I, you know, if I, I, I wish I knew, but I actually don't know. But I think getting educated about what the handbook, in fact, says, what the questions, in fact, are, and letting your adolescent child know what they are so that they understand that there are certain questions that they may be asked and that the questions really should not veer off of those questions. I would also educate my child to say, you can go and proactively talk to the bishop or another leader or another parent around anything that you don't feel like you can feel comfortable talking to me about or you want someone else's input. You know, you always can make that choice. But if someone comes in and seeks you out to do a worthiness interview, uh, here are the questions. And you do, do not have to need to feel ob- obligated to answer anything outside of those standard questions. Um, I think the other thing you can do that I absolutely think is important is to go in and speak to that bishop before any of those interviews happen and say, here's my concerns. This is what I don't want to have be asked. This is what I'm comfortable with having be asked. And um, please stick by the handbook. Um, Even just having that conversation is going to help a bishop be much more self-aware and more accountable and know, like, parents paying attention. Unfortunately, I mean, that the children the children and adolescents that are most likely to be exploited or to be treated unfairly in the sexual realm, the perpetrator, whoever it is, is tracking that that child has parents that are under-involved and that child is needy. And so if other people are tracking this child's parents are involved and aware and um, advocating, they're much less, they're much less likely to exploit or harm that child. And so... I mean, obviously, this isn't a systemic change that would be needed, but this is about just advocating for your own child. It's going to pressure that bishop to be more thoughtful about what they do. Another thing you can do is you can say, I, if you feel that you want to do this, to say that I, w- I would like you know, for one of us, the parents, to be present in any of those interviews, uh, unless our child says they don't want us to be there. And just as a way of having some accountability in a conversation that's going to include conversations about sexuality, I just am not, that I'm not comfortable with that happening in a private setting. Um, or, or if my child prefers another adult, like their young women's leader or something like that. So I think that you can clearly advocate to say, I want another adult there, either um, parents or somebody else. So I think, uh, and then I think again, helping your child to know that they can make decisions about what they disclose and don't disclose and that that you're not you don't I don't think you want to foster a sense of them being in an adversarial relationship with a, a church leader but I think you do want to give them a sense that it is those are their decisions and they really um have a right to determine what they feel they need to share or talk about or um get help with if they need help with something and that those are always their choices to make. Um, 
And I'm not saying it in a defiant way, but more like they have to take responsibility for what they choose to get help with or, or um, account for or talk about. And giving them a sense of that is important just in the same vein of, of giving them a sense of ownership over their sexuality and their moral choices. I mean, that while we are a church that really likes the idea of authority and deference to authority, we also have a very strong principle around agency and accountability and integrity. And you really want to, to create this in our kids. It's not just like, oh, that's not the same thing as resisting authority. It's that I am really am responsible for doing what I believe is right. And if that means going in and having a hard conversation with my bishop about my own sexual behavior because I, I don't feel good about it and I want to make different choices, you know, then that's that's a function of strength to go and seek the help and the input. I think that, um, but but you want to, your kids to have a sense that that their moral compass, what they believe is right inside is very important. It's very important for them to honor it. And um, that's more important than trying to keep people around them, adults in particular, happy with them or thinking that they're good. To be good is more important than to have others think they're good. And so uh, that's also a guiding principle. One thought on that, on the situation of a bishop's interview that when I shared an article a month or two ago about this issue and uh, got some a lot of a fair amount of pushback saying bishops aren't out trying to molest children mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that and and that's not that wasn't the intent or the focus of the article mm-hmm. it's just in that situation a bishop if a bishop had another adult in there mm-hmm. there's a lot of questions or a line of questioning that he would feel a lot less comfortable going down mm-hmm. And and so it, we just need to recognize that when you're in that situation, even a good person is going to be more brave in asking these mm-hmm. hard questions that maybe shouldn't be asked in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a... Um, yes, it's not, uh, it's not suggesting the bishop would somehow be a horrible person if that person weren't there, but it does pressure accountability. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, and even, like you said, I think that's a powerful tool to as a parent, as a proactive parent, to talk with the bishop and let him know you know what the questions are and what you expect. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, most bishops are just trying to do good. They're they're really trying to be a spiritual strength for the youth and the rest of the ward. Mm -hmm. And so if they have a parent that's a wary parent, they're going to be very careful in those interviews. So I think those would be very protective Right. Uh, measures that aren't very costly socially. Absolutely. And I, you know, I remember the first time I ever went to a gynecologist to just, that always, when I was going to a male gynecologist, female would always just come in. The nurse would just come into the room. It's not because she thought the gynecologist was a perpetrator, the male gynecologist was a perpetrator. It's because it both eases the patient's mind that there's no, that, that there's some security, there's accountability. The security for the patient themselves and also accountability for the doctor. I just think it's a good model. I think it's a good model and it's it makes it easier for everybody. Definitely. Um, do you want to comment further oh, on the yeah. adult piece? Yeah, again, I, I think it just comes back to a similar idea around what I was saying about uh, the idea of accountability and integrity and agency. I think that... Um, 
just as an adult woman, you have to decide, is there something that I really think I need to account for and get ecclesiastical help with um, or not? Or is it something I feel like I can just handle within my own relationship to God and I'm going to take responsibility for what I think I, in fact, need and what I feel like I need to account for? And I think that if you're being asked questions that you really don't think uh, – the bishop needs to know or that it has anything to do with your moral uh, development as a person, I don't think there's any good reason to disclose or to say. Obedience in and of itself has no moral value. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to add, um, there was something I had heard when I was a youth. I don't remember when. I was probably like 16 or so. But um, I really loved the way it put you know the you know when we when we need to repent about something it it really put into perspective owning it before you you know take it to someone else because mm-hmm. um, they said you know basically the bishop should be the last person you talk to you should first figure out if you need to do it if you can figure mm-hmm. it out between you and God mm-hmm. um, and then if that doesn't work you should go to a parent mm-hmm. um, if you need help and then if there's something that even requires something more than that then you go to the bishop mm-hmm. but the bishop should really be the last on the chain um, mm-hmm. if, if it's something you can't resolve yourself um, right. or you feel like there's something larger than that's just between you and God. Right. Um, and that really and it really struck me, actually, because it really taught me to instead of kind of avoiding certain uncomfortable things to really sit with them and and, and go to my heavenly father with them first instead of. You know, sometimes I think there's a temptation to to have someone else tell us what something means or to have someone right. else define an experience for us. Um, because especially dealing with sexuality, those are scary things sometimes because there's not a really solid roadmap besides don't do it before you're married. Um, right. And and so it was it for me that I found that very empowering um, that it was a sense of like, well, yeah, you should be trusted with your own spiritual development and the bishop is there to help you, not to dictate you. Exactly. Um, That's brilliant. Yeah. That's exactly exactly it. I think our church leaders and other adults in our lives are there to help us on our way. But I think it's very easy to fall into the model of, I just want to defer and have people think well of me or to, or to be a good girl. You know, it's very much how we're socialized. Like yeah. you accommodate, you capitulate, you defer as a function of goodness. And I don't think that's a function of goodness. That's a function of maybe wanting people to think you're good. But it's only a function of goodness if it's the right thing to defer or if it's the right thing to disclose because you need help um, and or that you need to be accountable and so I think you, you re- I'm not here to say only do you know, whatever you feel like doing. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you really need to do what you believe is right. But then it's a sense of I'm doing this because I believe it's right and I feel like I need to talk about it or I feel like I need to account for this. Um, but not as a function of I just have to do whatever he says or I just have to you know, speak up about this because he asked. That's more around I'm just going to fall in line because I don't want you to think bad things about me, not this is important for me to do or say or account for because I believe it's right to do so. Great. Well, that is some really good advice. Thank you, Jennifer, for 
coming on and fielding some more questions. And listeners, again, go check out her website. That We've got links for this course coming up. A lot more details on how to talk to your kids about sex and how to keep that dialogue going. So, Laurel and Jennifer, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Carl. I hope you found or continue to find this discussion helpful. Don't forget a few things. First, if you have questions of your own of a sexual nature for Jennifer, as usual, you can post them in the comments or via email, the address you can find in the blog post. Second, if you have small kids and are worried about or simply want some guidance in talking to them about sex, follow the links in the blog that take you to Jennifer's courses. Third, go to iTunes and leave us a review for crying out loud. And finally, I guess that would be fourth, go watch that Julia Sweeney TED Talk video I linked to and let me know how hard you laughed. I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, uh, as for next week, we'll be releasing another part in the Top 10 Books on Mormon History series with Ben Park. We'll be discussing the book written by Kathleen Flake, covering the Reed Smoot trial in the early 20th century. So please look forward to that. And until next time, keep keeping it weird. Weird.